the question that we're going to be asking. And I, ho- I hope you have enjoyed um, this session. I'm not asking if you've enjoyed necessarily me or Ryan or Paul's teaching, although I hope that we're able to communicate God's truth in an effective and uh, passionate and accurate way, obviously. Um, but more than that, like I really hope that you have a better understanding and awareness of a section of scripture that most people that I meet say, I love history. I get that a lot. I really enjoy history. I really enjoy looking at that. Um, But we're not looking at history. Let me tell you about these figures and what day they were born and what day they took reign and what day um, they had problem X and what day war Y happened. We're really not doing that. We're asking like, what are the theological underpinnings of what actually is happening? So that you and I, and this is kind of the piece that I get a real kick out of, so that you and I can begin to see the hand of God as he moves through history, not so that we can manipulate or control or predict what he's going to do in our lives. That's something I always um, see in the Bible that we are cautioned against. Do not believe that you can manipulate or control God the way that the Egyptians tried to control Ra, like the Babylonians tried to control their God, like the Philistines tried to control Dagon through their worship and through their their own righteous acts, right? The things that they thought that they should do. Not that their gods, um, well, actually they thought they could control their gods, but their gods didn't exist. But it's not, let's go back and look at history so that we can control God, which I think is always a temptation that we have. Even though we might not use that word, okay? Um, And I love to point out that although I would, I have no problem describing God as faithful, we got to be, we got to be careful um, making faithful and predictable synonymous. Although I think it's always good to say, listen, if you mean by predictable that God is true to his word, then that's a good word. If you mean by predictable that when God says something, that he's going to do it. I'm, I'll add, okay, that's great. I get it. That's what I'm for. But if you mean God is predictable that somehow if I do X, he owes me Y, and I know exactly why, and I know exactly how to control these things, that's the part that the Bible constantly says, ah, fooled you. Uh, it's, it's a dangerous thing to do, and that's why how we worship God matters, how we respond to God matters, how we pray to God matters. So here's the question I want to begin with a little bit. If we are good, then God will what? Okay, if we are good, then God will what? And what we're going to see uh, as we look at some, some kings in the south today, we're going to be beginning with one and kind of ending with another one. We're going to walk through, say, I think it's like six, I think we're going to be looking at. Um, I, I want to just make sure that there is something that is predictable in our text tonight. There are patterns of God's behavior. There are even patterns of human behavior that are somewhat, I, I, I know where this is going and I know what's going to happen. And then there's a part of it that doesn't make any sense to me, okay? And uh, so sometimes it can almost seem like God is arbitrary. And yet, I would say God always has a divine prerogative, which is good for us as his followers to realize. Um, There is a prerogative that stands outside of what you and I want or what you and I expect, and it calls for us to submit to him, which I think is a a beautiful thing. As hard as it might be, it becomes a beautiful and reassuring thing that God is good, whether we understand what that means or not. But when we look at this, the first thing that I would challenge is what do you mean by we? Right? Because if I say if we are good, then God will, here's what happened. Some of us did this. If we are, oh, you mean if I am good, and you put your name in there, if Jim is good, 
and you personalized it, right? Which, by the way, isn't necessarily a bad thing. I, I, I have no problem encouraging you to read the scriptures. For God so loved Jim Johnson that he sent his only son to die. That's true. I have no problem with that. And at times I want to encourage you to read the Bible as though it is all designed at some level for you, a blessing for you, a gift to you. Jesus died for you. I can say that. The problem is, is that when we reduce it just to this, if Jim is good, then God will X, is not always what's happening around us. Because sometimes the we can be reduced to me, but in the majority of cases, when we are looking at the Bible, and, and this is kind of why we, we, we need to go back and um, submit ourselves and look at the big picture of what Scripture is describing, the we that is being discussed is Israel. Now, if I say to you, tell me what Israel is like. Tell me what Israel is like. Um, is Israel, do they love God or do they not love God? And, and if we were to get real particular You'd say, well, you can't just give me those two options. The truth is some really love him, but the majority of them seem to be rebellious. And that's what's happening. And, and by the way, even those who love him, there are even degrees of those. Like as we look at these kings, you're going to see variations or different degrees of obedience to God. And I love one of my favorite story, or one of my favorite lines in all of tonight, it says this, and such and such a king did right in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father David. Okay, wait a second. Every other time, it's he either did right like his father David, or he did evil unlike his father David. This one says, he did right in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father David. And so there is, within um, the biblical account, there are those that are totally sold out to God, there are those that are totally sold out to evil, and then there are those that are sometimes sold out, and sometimes, and I love to ask this question, which one resonates most with you, right? I mean, can you, can you kind of get a feel for those kings who really had a heart like their father David, but not just quite that strong? So when we look at these accounts, and as we begin to try to think, how do we understand how, what God is going to do if Israel is good, then God will, or, by the way, we need to qualify this one too, I guess. What do you mean by good? Like, what, what do you mean actually by good? And this is a very, 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 very important principle when, when reading the Bible anywhere. Good, it's not, I don't want to say it's a relative term, but if you want to say how does the Bible understand, interpret, or expect goodness, it actually would be synonymous with faithful. It would be, is Israel faithful? Not, did Israel make a mistake or did Israel sin? Because go back and look at when God gave the commandments and God gave the rules and the expectations and all of the laws. There was, and when you sin, then you do this. And when you sin, then you should do this. So it's not like God said, faithful equals no sinning, Right? How many of you got married thinking, my spouse will never fail me? Right now, we all knew they were gonna fail, right? At least Andrea did, she knew. There's no way he's gonna make it, right? But yet, Andrea and I can look at each other, 27-ish, almost eight, is that right? Is that where we're at? 
See, even she's looking at me going, I'm trying to add this up. So we look at each other, right? And so, but we could say to each other, we really could, we could say to each other, we've been faithful. We have been faithful. Oh, you're saying you never made a mistake? No, but we have been faithful. To what, by the way? See, Andrea doesn't ask me if I'm good. Our, our rings actually, Andrea did this in our 20th anniversary. Um, we replaced our rings, both of us did. We replaced our rings and instead of just our normal wedding bands, Andrea had them designed with the Hebrew word naman, which means faithful. And it just says it over and over and over again in Hebrew. I look at my ring and, and what I'm called to be is not perfect. I mean, she's gracious to me. She puts up with me, okay? Um, but I'm faithful. So faithful to what? And this is why it's good to spend a little bit of time thinking through things to the covenant or to the agreement that we have. And Andrew and I have an agreement. We said it to each other. I promise to love and honor and to cherish you, um, whether we're sick or whether we're healthy, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, um, till death do us part. That was our covenant, okay? And so that becomes this binding agreement for us. Israel has a covenant with God, right? At Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. At Mount Sinai, Israel and God come together and God says, this is what I want from you. I want you to follow me. I want you to worship me. I want you to obey me. And Israel says, we, we swear, us and our children, we will worship you alone. Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You choose who you want to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Israel promised to do. That's what Joshua promised to do, okay? And if they do that, then God will what? And the answer is that God will bless them. He will provide them for them. And he will protect them. Because there are enemies in this world. And I, I, these two are huge. In our, I've, I've said this a million times over the last few weeks, right? It is about provision and protection. Provision, here is your stuff that you need to live. And here, let me help you against your enemies, Okay? By the way, great pictures of what um, families should be or parents should be to kids, providers and protectors. And um, I would say when, when, when you as a couple or one of you is, when you're, when you're failing to do that, that's where there is insecurity. That's where there is great fear in the family, right? When provision and protection aren't provided for. And so God comes along and he says it very, very clear. If Israel is faithful to the covenant, then he, God, Yahweh God, and it's why it's good to even add here the covenantal name of him, Yahweh. So whenever you see in your Bible through this entire section, and the Lord God, L-O-R-D, all in capitals, L-O-R-D in capitals is Yahweh, his covenantal name in the Old Testament. That when Israel is faithful to the covenant, then Yahweh God will bless by providing and protecting them. Okay, so that's, this, that's the scenario as we hit the times of the kings. Which, by the way, if Israel is, what's the flip? Unfaithful. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean do bad things? What's interesting is, when you see this word unfaithful, and I'm, I'm, it's always hard for me, because on Tuesday I teach a class on the judges with Nancy, and then on Wednesday I'm here, and so there's a lot of overlap between the judges, or a lot of comparisons between the judges and this period of the kings. But when Israel is unfaithful, in the period of the judges, it says, and Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And evil, oh, what's evil? I don't know, drinking, smoking, tobacco, uh, gambling, probably like a casino, right? That's kind of what we think about. These are the evil sins of the murder, right? These are the evil sins. Actually, when the book of Judges says, and Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, it is things like they had idols and they worshiped in the high places, the other gods, And then from their idolatry and from their worship of foreign gods, they began to act like those foreign gods and those foreign people, and that led to all of the bad things. Well, we want to talk about the bad things. And God says, no, the bad things are never the problem. Don't don't look at the the kind of the results and think that that's where the, the problem is. This is why it's so good for us as Christians to realize, like, the problem isn't that you and I do bad things. The problem is, is that you and I worship the wrong thing that we trade in who God is and what God is all about and you, decide, well, you and I decide to worship ourselves and our own agendas and our own purposes and we trade in God for something other than God. And when we do that, then we begin to manipulate and control people. We've got no rules. We've got no, we've got no kind of regulation on our lives. The rule is what I want. And that's where destruction comes. Why? Because we're violating what God always intended. Now, all of this is really important because if they are unfaithful, then there's not a blessing. There is a curse that exists. And a good text for you to look at, and I'm gonna kind of read to you just in a moment, um, is Deuteronomy 12. We're gonna go there in a second. And that's, that's a chapter I kind of recommend you kind of just kind of burn into your brain. Deuteronomy 12 is just a good major chapter to go, yeah, this is God and Israel talking about what this covenant relationship is going to look like. And so God says, by the way, if you're unfaithful, I'm going to curse you. Okay, you'll be cursed. Cursed are those for their unfaithfulness. Predominantly, the unfaithfulness is described as idolatry and worshiping things other than Yahweh. And when that happens, there will be no provision. And when there is When there is disobedience, then there is also what? No protection. So this is what this means, and this is what this means, and it is good for us to realize, in that sense, God is predictable for Israel, okay? Now, one final thing before we jump into our text. What makes it more complicated (laughs) is that I always want to ask, like, when? Like if Israel, like okay, if we decide to have an idol on the stage on Sunday, okay, will God kill us Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday-ish, Thursday noon latest, right? So then that way we can even realize, wow, what happened? We put the idol on the stage on Sunday and we all died on Thursday and the other churches go, let's not do that, right? But what happens, okay, and this is what's important, what happens when we make an idol and we put it on the stage on Sunday? We come, by the way, we're still going to say we're going to worship Yahweh. We're just using an idol to do it, okay? So we put the idol on the stage on Sunday, and for those of you that are kind of playing in the stock market, we have a great week. Everything seems to be going better, right? And some of us get promotions, and wow, I'm, I mean, I don't know if it's the idol that did it, but something's working. I don't know about you. Anybody else have a great week? Yeah, I had a great week wow, then I don't think, and then like 60 years later, then all of a sudden hardships come, and we go, remember that, 
where is that? Is that aisle? It's kind of at the back of the stage now. You know, I mean, I don't even know if I totally pay attention. It's so much a part of what we do. We got them all over the place now. I mean, that's an idol. I didn't even realize what that was. I just thought that was kind of what we did, right? Now, all of a sudden, who's got even the ability to make the connection between God's judgment and that? And by the way, when the people had a hard time making the judgment between what's happening in our fields, what's happening with our enemies, and what's happening, and, and, and the connection to that, here's what I love. Whenever the people could not make the connection, who showed up? This is, you gotta know the answer to this. Who showed up? Prophets. <laughs> Prophets walked in the room. Hey, by the way, you guys look confused. So let me just remind you, Deuteronomy 12, let me explain to you um, why the Periites are taking over Stillwater. Let me explain to you why the Perkinites are kind of expanding their territory. Into the, let me explain to you why. Because I, I know you couldn't figure this out on your own. Because this idolatry in terms of how we worship is no, no firmly entrenched in us. You have forgotten the promise that... Yeah, I know it wasn't even you, it was your ancestors. It was your great, 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 great grandfather and the promises that he made to Yahweh God that he has forsaken and you have forsaken, this is why Perry and Perkins are taking over Stillwater. You're like, I don't believe you. I know there's gotta be another reason. There's gotta be another reason. I think maybe it is that the God of Perry is stronger than our God. I think the problem is that the God of the Perkinites is stronger than our God. And, and by the way, what's, what's interesting is, is that this prophet doesn't show up with like this, oh, right? Like we always just go, how do you not listen? How many of you, when you read the Bible, go, how do you not listen to the prophet? Give me some slack on this. Have I ever said anything and you didn't listen? And I, I want some slack, hear me, because I'm not even trying to say I'm on par, Right? But let's pretend I am the problem. Let's pretend, let's just pretend for a moment that everything I said was clearly from the voice of God. Have you followed everything? Or do you even go, ah, that's Jim, right? You don't think that was the same as them? And by the way, when I'm sitting there, you don't think I'm having the same problem with my prophet? So, I, and one of the things that I want us to do when we look at these texts is to, I'm not asking us to just sympathize with them, but I am asking us to understand just how easy it is for idolatry to creep into us and into our worship. And how easy it is for us to, to miss God's promises and to misunderstand what blessing means and what curses mean, okay? And so here we're gonna, tonight we're gonna be focusing, by the way, I mean, I've got a number of different texts all through um, Second Chronicles and Second Kings. But again, let me remind you, Second Kings focuses on, for the most part, Israel, the northern tribes. Chronicles focuses, for the most part, on the southern tribes. And so what I have done here is all I'm talking about are what is happening in the south. So there's stuff happening in the north. Um, Paul talked about that last week, but we're not really messing with that per se. We're just looking at the events that are happening in the south. The first thing that I want us to see is that God's covenant is going to remain intact. God's covenant first moment with David. Remember what God promised David? You will always have a descendant on the throne. This amazes me. You will always have a descendant on the throne. I've always wondered, like, have I ever been so in love with the Lord? Because it's his, it was David's heart for him. Have I ever been so in love with the Lord, like that God would put up with my very inappropriate and, and even evil, great, great, think about this, great, 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 great grandson. 
Man, but your great, 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 great grandfather Jim was just so devoted to me. I'm gonna put up with you. And here's the other part. How many of those greats on, on the sun side, how many of those were bad? The answer is lots of them. And I love in these Kings and Chronicles material when God would look down from this sovereign, huge picture and say, and because of David's love for me and because of my love for David, I'm, I'm not going to deal with you as harshly as you deserve. That's, that's, that's rich. So God's covenant with King David remains intact. Therefore, God is patient with wicked kings of Judah because of his servant David. And by the way, and yet they are still punished. I love this. Because what you and I get into is, um, have you ever done this way? Hey, like, do you know who I am and do you know some of the connections I have? See, what's really interesting is God says, now, because of my servant David, I'm going to let you live, some, most of them, a long life, right? Um, I'm going to let you, at some level, be prosperous. But by the way, I'm, I'm still God, and I'm not going to be mocked, and you'll see some kings. By the way, some good and some not so good, and God says, yeah, you're still going to reap the consequences of your sin. So even though I'm working on a bigger story for Israel, I'm dealing with you, right? And I think it's good for us to remember that God, and he's, God's the only one that can do this perfectly, that God, as he is dealing with a nation, strategically is dealing with individuals as well, all in perfect unison. If you just wanna just be amazed at the sovereignty of God, just think about, wow, he is punishing this king as he is being patient with the nation, as being, as he's being faithful to his promise to his great, 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 great grandfather, and he is holding all of this for his great, 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 great grandson who is the Messiah, all at the same time, that's God. That's what the books of Kings and Chronicles are, are driving us towards. The second thing that you need to realize as we're looking at these southern kings is that not only do you have the King David covenant, but God's covenant with Israel that was ratified at Sinai that I've talked about here also remains intact, which describes the blessings whenever there is, and this is what's interesting, is what you're going to see is that it's not, sometimes it is a little more spontaneous. Now, not day, not this and then two days later this. But you're going to see kings in their youth commit to the Lord and then you're going to see because of their reforms and because of what they did that the Lord was faithful to them and they were able at times. That's why I love it to say you could never know the, co the correlation between the two. That's not true. Many times you could actually see the correlation between the two. But there were also some deeper things that God was ultimately doing. And I love this, Zechariah the priest um, in 2 Chronicles 24 is going to warn Judah that they are going to be punished for their disobedience to Yahweh's commands. And so even as these prophets come in and they are describing God's punishment, what they keep drawing back to is not, hey, you're being bad, it's that you are being unfaithful to the covenant. And even though, and, or no, I should say this, and since you are being unfaithful to the covenant, God is going to do this. And Genesis, or, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, let me read this just real quick so you can see this as the backdrop. 
These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispose of their, or dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim, which is their, literally their idol, like a pole that stood up. You shall um, burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down their carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. You shall go and therefore you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, your contributions um, that that you present your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and all of your flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice, you shall, you and your household, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord Yahweh your God has blessed you. And then he goes to expand it even more. So here's what's interesting. Like the primary command that God is giving Israel here is not be good. It's the people in Canaan have been evil, and therefore I'm, removing them and you get the land. That's why you guys waited in Egypt for 400 years because their sins were going to reach a, a, a kind of a max capacity and God's, patient, God's patience was, was done. And so now they're being dispossessed. And so when you go in and you see all of these idols and you see their idolatry, then I want you to proactively tear it all down, okay? And so that's been the call that God has put towards these people. Two other quick things. One is that God then sends the people, both priest and prophet, to speak against what is happening and the people's rebellion. And so it's sometimes a priest, it's sometimes a prophet, okay? Uh, which literally served in two different functions. If you're priest, then you, you should be anyway. Israel messed this up a few times, but you should be from the tribe of Levi, a descendant of Moses and Aaron. Um, a prophet could be from a number of different places, and we'll actually, we'll, we'll kind of recognize some of those. And so we are going to see different priests tonight, Jehoiadiah and Zechariah and Oded. And then also another kind of interesting one, you have Elisha, who's going to kind of, and even Elijah just makes a kind of a weird appearance. Um, Elijah and Elisha are in the northern tribes, but Elijah still at one particular moment tonight just kind of reaches down to a southern king and goes, God's going to get you. So don't, don't think you're going to escape this. Other things that it's good for you to realize, and for the most part, their, uh, their writings aren't addressed in, first, in Second Kings and Second Chronicles, is there are also some prophets that we know their writings that exist that are writing during this time period. So these are just the ones that are writing during this time period. So as I'm describing these kings, you have Jonah and Hosea and Amos writing to the northern tribes, warning them of God's judgment. Okay, so think of that as the backdrop. And then you have Micah, as well as Isaiah, probably the largest, one of the largest books. I think it's the second largest book in the Bible. Isaiah, 66 chapters where God warns about the destruction that he is going to bring against the southern tribes. So Micah and Isaiah are preaching judgment against all of these kings. So it's not like these kings don't know. There are prophets and priests some who are writing great books, some who are just sometimes momentarily coming on and speaking God's truth in a very specific situation. So God is not silent. When I hear people talk about, well, I wish God would be more clear. 
actually, if I can just, I'll just throw myself on this one. My problem is not that God has been unclear to me. My problem is I don't know if God wants me to worship him or not. No, that one's pretty clear. I don't know if God wants me to be faithful to my wife or not. No, that one's actually pretty clear. Yeah, I don't know if I should steal your stuff or not. God was kind of vague about it. No, it's actually pretty clear. I don't know if Jesus Christ is coming back. That's not vague. That one's pretty clear. So it's interesting. We want to pretend that there's all this vagueness, but it's only usually because we want to hide in our ignorance so that we can kind of claim, like our children. It drives us crazy when our kids do it. I forgot. I didn't know. I didn't know. How many of you looked at your kids and said, well, you should have known? Raise your hand if you said that to your kids. Yeah, that's the prophets. You should have known. I don't want to hear about it. You should have known. So God is amazingly clear. Okay, so let's deal with the kings. That shouldn't be the first three. It's lots more than three. The kings of Judah. First one is, and you'll actually see some similar names. Um, I've got the, uh, depending on if it's from kings or if it's from chronicles, uh, and I've got two of the kings in brackets so you can see that um, it's the exact same king. They just go by two different names. And the first one is Jehoram. And Jehoram's dad is a king that I talked about actually a number of weeks ago, King Jehoshaphat, okay, Jumping Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat. He has a son, and his son's name is Jehoram, and he is an evil king. Now, by evil, what do I mean? He didn't deal with the high places like Deuteronomy promised, and he worshiped foreign gods. So Jehoram was evil in the sight of God, and he followed the ways, and I think this is interesting, he followed the ways, because this is still kind of hanging around. Remember Ahab and his wonderful wife, the real virtuous woman, Jezebel, okay, so that's during the time of Elijah, and um, you've got the, the biggest problem with Elijah and Jezebel is that they worship Baal, okay, the fertility god of the area, so they worship Baal, and what's we're, what we're actually seeing is that Jehoshaphat, who dies in a battle with Ahab, his son, Jehoram, since he's going, wow, this Ahab guy is so popular, they marry, or he marries one of Ahab's daughters. And so this happens actually for him and for his son. Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord, and it says the same way that the kings of Israel did. Why? Because his wife was Ahab's daughter. And so what you're going to see, much like you could catch even in some of the judges' material, and it's not always that the women were the problem, so don't read that, okay? But there is a, a major warning that happens throughout the scriptures that when there is a marriage or when you marry, that you need to marry of same faith. Ahab did not. He married someone that worshiped Baal. And Jehoram did not. He married a daughter of Jezebel. And so she corrupted him. But by the way, Solomon, remember that one? That would be Jehoram's great, 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 great grandfather. That was his problem as well. And so there is this influence, which is interesting. It's not like, it's not like wow, it's all her fault. No, 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 Jehoram, you, you went along with this. Did evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because he is wrapped up in the idolatry that Israel has and the idolatry that his wife has and his wife and the idolatry that is going to be coming from this Baal worship as well as Ahab and Jezebel. And this is why kind of looking at the bigger picture God came along through the prophet Elijah and said, this whole scenario is under his judgment. And there's someone who's going to be coming and he's going to kind of wreak havoc on everybody. And you're gonna see him in a moment. 
Jehu, okay? A guy, by the way, who would like to drive his chariot really, really fast. Which, how many of you have heard the phrase driving like a Yehu? Right, that's where, this came, that's where that phrase came from. King Jehu, who rode his chariot so wild that Jezebel could tell him coming from a mile away because he was an uncontrollable chariot driver. So that's where we actually, so jumping Jehoshaphat, that's biblical. Driving like a Yehu, that's actually biblical as well. Um, and, and by the way, so let me, let, me give you, let me give you something that's even when you're reading the account. Sometimes when you're reading the account, it'll just, it'll just say something and you're like, well, why does that, why is that? Have you ever read the Bible? Like, why did it tell me that? Like, what, what does that have to do with anything? Let me give you one of those. In both 2 Kings 8, it's the bottom line there on page one, on 2 Kings 8 and as well as 2 Chronicles 21, it just describes it this way, that Jehoram, when he is king, Edom rebels against him and stops paying tribute to him. Okay, who cares? What does that mean? King David was notorious for the fact that when David reigned, they had peace from all of their enemies. And so the Philistines that lived down here and the Midianites that lived over here, as well as the Ammonites that lived over here and the Syrians that lived over here, and then the Moabites that lived here and the Edomites that lived here, okay? The Egyptians weren't really much into it. But when David was king, guess what? The, the peace and the prosperity from their enemies went everywhere, it extended all beyond this. Now not that there were no Philistines and there were no Edomites, but instead of them raiding, pillaging, stealing, they're actually paying tribute, which is a kind of a major theme in the Bible, that all these nations would come and pay tribute, right? And the Edomites come, and they, they're the descendants of Esau, by the way, they're coming and they're paying tribute to King David. And so when it says, and Edom rebels against Jehoram, and they no longer pay tribute. What's that saying? This is not happening. All of a sudden, their enemies, you, you, you have, I'm at war, and then there's, you're in subjection to, and now all of a sudden, the Edomites are going, yeah, we're not paying you anymore. What are you going to do about it? And Jehoram is getting weaker as the Edomites are saying, hey, we're not paying you. And by the way, actually, let me, maybe you should start paying us, okay? Now, kind of in the backstory, Egypt is a nation that still exists. They're not at their heyday yet, but they're still a strong nation, okay? And then you have over here, Assyria and Babylon, Iraq, Iran, the Mesopotamian Peninsula, and they are now a growing force, Assyrian armies, okay? That's where Jonah goes during this time period to preach to Nineveh, right? So huge force here. So why does that matter? First of all, when you go back and you read Amos and you read a lot of these passages, you'll see God's judgment against Edom, Moab, Ammon, Syria, right? So why would God, why would these prophets who are speaking to these guys say, and you're going to be judged, and you're going to be judged, and you're going to be judged, and you're going to be judged. Why is that in there? I never knew why that was in there. And then I realized, well, wait a second, there's a bigger story that's happening. The Assyrians are coming. Okay, if there was a huge army coming, what do you do? You find allies. So who's gonna be on our side, right? And so, and by the way, the Bible says that when the enemies come, who is our protector? God. Therefore, when you decide to go somewhere else instead of going to God, what happens? God goes, that, that, that literally becomes a form of idolatry, isn't it? 
So you're going, let's see if I get this straight. You're going to go to Egypt because <laughs> I'm sending Assyria to punish you and your response to that is you're gonna go to Egypt. And, and hear this, in Israel's history, you're going to go to Egypt to get some help? Like, do you remember when they had you and like you could do nothing and I freed you from them? And so statements in the prophets, Isaiah, Micah, all of these, don't trust Egypt's horses. Don't trust Egypt's horses. Don't, don't trust those things. That's not where your protection is going to come from. So when Edom rebels against Joram, all of a sudden you recognize, wow, there's something breaking in the south. There's still threats coming from around. And so you've got a king who is losing power, who's trying to figure out how he can maintain this, and his answer, amazingly enough, and we're going to see this played out, his answer is, we should worship Baal more. That's the problem. The problem is, we should worship Baal more. And uh, what the, the definition of insanity is what? Doing the same thing over and over and over again, thinking you're gonna get like a different result. And so the prophets come in, hey listen, don't trust Edom, don't trust Ammon, don't trust the Syrians, don't trust your own strength, that's one of the warnings they give, don't trust your own strength. You need to go back and remember the problem is Deuteronomy 12, that's your problem. You're ignoring the covenantal promise that Yahweh the Lord your God has made to you and that's why they're coming. If you wanna find peace, trust in him. Now, th this has been fun for me as I've been kind of working on these lessons because like if there was going to be a war in America, right, and whoever the enemy was going, they were gonna come, and you were to just come to me and say, just trust in the Lord. How many of you would go, um, and can we get some like, like allies while we're trusting on the Lord, right? Like how many of you would just go, wow, no, like we're America. We've never even had a problem like this before, and now we're actually kind of afraid. And you want me to do what? No, what we need is a bigger military. That's what we need. What are you talking about? We need, we need good allies out there. That's, how many of you kind of know what I'm talking about? That's what I think. And the answer is no, trust in the Lord. Now, by the way, here's where it's a little bit different. Can I tell you? Here's where it's a little bit different. Uh, I may get in trouble for this too, but here's where I believe it's a little bit different. God never came to America and said, here is this land, I'm giving it to you, You'll stay there as long as you follow my 10 Commandments. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll, we can talk about this later if you've got a problem with it. Panera's open late. Um, we, can, we can have this conversation. But it's, it, it is a little bit different when it comes to us because we don't have the exact same covenantal promise that Israel had with their land, okay? So we don't. So it is a little bit different. But it is also the same in the sense that when I begin to get worried, and I do, when I get worried, these are the two things that scare me is provision and protection, right? And so, it, by the way, I don't think my answer then is, ah, since we don't have the same covenantal promise, we can panic. Or since we don't have the same covenantal promise, we can then build and find our security. In the, no, I look back at these stories and I realize, wow, so like if God's gonna do something, hmm, I, I get a lot of just reflecting on these things. It's interesting that this is the, this is the king, Jehoram, and maybe the reason why Elijah speaks, not only is he alive, but because he knows that this guy and everybody attached to him and Jehoram decided to attach to this family, 
okay? Heard they, they were a good family and married into it. And Elijah sends him a letter saying, yeah, you're gonna be punished for this, just so you're aware of this. And Jehoram says, you're going to actually die of this. The Chronicles material describes this as your insides are going to be eaten up until your, your bowels, your insides go on your outsides. And it's exactly what happens, and Jehoram dies. And he has a son named King Ahaziah. Ahaziah kind of watched how his dad lived and thought, wow, that works, and so he followed it. He is also described as walking in the wicked ways. These are the only two kings that are described in this way, walked in the wicked ways of King Ahab. And one of the reasons why is he is also married to one of the children of that dynasty. And so as Jehu is now getting ready to wreak his havoc, and guess who anointed Jehu? Elijah. Elijah anointed three people. Remember when he ran away from God after Mount Carmel? He ran away into the desert and saw God in the still small voice. God said, hey, get up, go home. And I want you to do three things. I want you to anoint Hezael, who's going to be the king of the north. I want you to, or not northern Israel, but of Syria. And I want you to also um, anoint uh, Jehu, who is going to destroy these people. And I want you to anoint Elisha, who's going to replace you. And so Elijah anoints these three people Jehu at that point is not a king. I don't even know what his political aspirations were, but he is definitely a rebel with a cause. And Jehu is now set out to destroy the family of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab's already dead by this point in time. And what this particular king does, Ahaziah, decides, hey, I wanna connect with King Joram of the north. So this is where you're gonna see some names that kind of overlap, okay? It's kind of like a Canadian prime minister named George Bush, okay? Which there's never been, but imagine there was. So even though they have a similar George, let's just say George, not the same last name. So you're going to have some similar names, okay? And so King Ahaziah of the south decides to go into battle with King Jehoram on the north, and what happens is Jehu shows up and just starts killing them all. And then right after this account, when he kills King Ahaziah for his idolatry, and and Jehu actually almost sounds like a prophet, which is interesting, because I remember, I kind of like Jehu, and I keep thinking every time I read, it's kind of like I watch a movie and I think it's going to change, it's going to be different at the end. Every time I'm reading Jehu, I'm like, there's so many good things in you, like, are you going to get it right? He doesn't. He ends up being a terrible person too. But he definitely enacts the judgments of God, and he kills Ahaziah, and then right after this, if you look in the king's material, he goes to the house where Jezebel is, and her husband's already dead, and she dresses up, I guess, I don't know if you remember this part, and specifically the Hebrew text describes, and she painted her eyes, goes into great detail about how she gets all dressed up, and she comes down and she starts mocking him, okay, and Jehu yells up, hey, if there's anybody up there that's kind of on my side, It's a bit of a challenge type thing. Throw that woman over. And a couple of guys grab her and chuck her over. And dogs eat her up. Jezebel's gone. Jehu's a a northern king. So he, he just comes, enacts judgment against this house. They're dead. But a king from the south who decides to align, just like his father did with this family, falls under the retribution. So a king is judged on by God for his unfaithfulness. 
and yet it continues on. So that's King Ahaziah. There's some great stories, by the way. Kind of recommend you read them if you get a chance. And then we've got one of my favorite stories. I remember this one here when I was a kid because this is a boy who's six years old. Um, right in between these, I didn't kind of bring her up, but there is a period, the, 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 uh, the Chronicles material says this, and when King Azariah, or ah- Ahaziah dies, there was no one fit to lead yet. His son, Joash, um, is the Chronicle name for him, and Jehoash is the first king's name, or the second king's name for him. Same king though, okay? Um, he is only six years old. So there's really no one that's going to be able to kind of take the throne. And his mom, Athaliah, who is also related to this house, assumes the throne. And it's almost like a uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, King Henry, kind of a, almost a European. If you guys know anything about European history with queens coming to power and then just killing everybody, that's what happens here. And Queen Athaliah, which would be Jehoram's mother, starts killing everybody and is really ready to even kill her own son. She starts killing everybody to take control of the land. And Jehoiadiah, the priest, hides Joash as a little, little boy, and she reigns for six years. And then Jehoiadiah, the priest, brings this little child, who's still young, into the temple with a whole army of other priests, and they say, behold, the, the, the king. She freaks out. She tries to, don't kill me, don't kill me. They kill her. And now all of a sudden you have this young man, the youngest man, and this is kind of a really cool story, this young boy under the tutelage of this great priest, Jehoiadiah. And this priest and him begin to do some amazing things. So he is rescued from the hand of, oh sorry, not his mother, his grandmother. He is rescued from the hand of his grandmother, Athaliah. Jehoiadiah the priest then begins to set up some major reforms. And and Joash, or Jehoash, is actually one of the first ones that comes in and he says, um, we, need to, we need to build this place up again. We need to really build this place up again. Why? And one of the reasons why that you actually see here is imagine that if this place, which is the worship of God, and the temple was more than just this one room, that all of these things were made of gold and they had both religious as well as financial value attached to them, okay? When another king is coming, Guess one of the first places you go to get money to have a tribute to go to that king. Where do you go? To the temple. What do we got? We got a gold altar, okay? Break it up. Give it to him. I mean, would you rather have the gold altar or would you rather have your life? And so periodically you will actually see that the health of Judah is directly correlated. The spiritual health, the um, financial health, all of the the prosperity and the protection depends upon like what's happening at the temple. And so when you see Joash providing these reforms and people giving back to the temple, he sets up a chest and people start giving and he starts replacing things. Now all of a sudden, because of this, because of his spiritual reforms and the people worshiping God and the people not worshiping in the high places, we actually see Israel under the reign of Jehoash, or Joash, and he reigns for quite a while, we actually see the nation getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. But sadly, I, I always kind of wish um, he was, again, one of my favorite kings, starts as a little boy, does a really, really great job. Um, this great guy, uh, Jehoiada, who is the one who protected him and cared for him, uh, Jehoiada dies. 
And the text, this happens in a number of different places. The text describes Joash, when Jehoiada the priest dies, Joash turning to his buddies and going, hey, what should I do? Kind of my mentor is gone, what do I do? And it's amazing the number of times that these, I mean, probably a middle-aged man at that time, his friends go, man, we should try that bail thing. It's been a while. Again, when I'm reading it from my office, it seems nuts, but Joash decides to do that. And guess what happens? God begins to provide judgment against him. And it's sad, but it is Jehoiada's son who comes and pronounces judgment against Joash. And Joash kills him, Zechariah the priest. Kills him. How dare you speak against me? I'm the king. And it says he forgot the kindness shown to him by Jehoiada, and he enacts punishment against this prophet that would dare speak to him. It's amazing how time can confuse us um, and can uh, kind of dilute our commitment and dilute our understanding of what's happening around us. That's why one of the worst things that can happen, okay, to, to uh, people or a person are years of in, in, uh, not, un, in, not interrupted, is that right? In, un, in, uninterrupted, yeah, there we go. I'm Good thing I don't speak for a living. Uninterrupted prosperity. It's one of the worst things that can happen. And by the way, I'm not saying, hey, you know what we should do? We should just hope for bad things. I don't believe that either, right? But just when there are years of uninterrupted prosperity, it is so easy for us to just go, wow, this is, we, we did this. We're doing this. This is great. Um, and you, you lose sight of dependence upon God. You lose sight of kind of how you got there. So here is this king who does all of these things, all of these reforms, and then after his mentor leaves, turns his back on it all. Um, in the end, by the way, it's kind of interesting, and then he just dies peacefully and is buried with his fathers. Next, King Amaziah. King Amaziah, this is the guy I was telling you about. Amaziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father David. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse three. And so I think that's kind of a, an interesting picture here. Um, and by the way, when it says that, he did what was right, but not in the same way that David did it. It's what did he do, to what extent did he try to tear down the idols in the high places? And again, just so we can understand why that would be complex, imagine if I said, hey guys, here's what I want us to do, because this is what it means to be really committed to Jesus, is I want us to just go around, find idols in Stillwater, and tear them down. Right? See anything that people really love and are devoted to and tear it down. See a baseball diamond? Tear it down. You see what, you know, anything at all, and you're going, well, I don't know if that's gonna help, like, with our, the attitude with the people, and I mean, it cost people things when they began to do this. Um, it's, 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 to me, it's a fun thought because when we were traveling, Paul, when we were in Africa, right, I, I would ask Austin, hey, there's like an, a tree that's dedicated to this, uh, I guess uh, like it was a portal to this other place. It's this place where they come and worship. Should we go tear it down? Right? What's, what would your answer be? If we were missionaries over there, should we tear that down? Like, and let's pretend it's, it's not like somebody else necessarily even owns it, but we should go up, they have these ribbons that go around them. Should we like tear down the ribbon? Should we just like say, no, this is wrong? How many of you would go, oh, that just seems so inconsiderate? Anybody else? Just go, it just seems, it's not, it's not yours. You should let, just let it be. Okay, and then I, at least me, because I'm kind of running through, and by the way, I didn't go and cut any ribbons off. 
So at some degree, I just, I, I let it be. But I kind of walked away going, I wonder if God wanted me to take that down. Like, am I just a coward? Right? Anybody else kind of have that stuff kind of run through that? Am I supposed to speak out against it? Anybody do that? See something? You're really worried? Should I speak out against that? Huh. And I, those things play with my mind. So before we just go, I don't know why you had a heart like your father David, but you did not follow it completely. What's wrong with you? Huh. It, it is difficult for us as well. So Amaziah, um, which is kind of a real sad scenario, one of the things that happens uh, to, to Amaziah is that as he is failing in a number of different areas, um, the king of Israel comes and fights against him and begins to ransack, tear down certain parts of Jerusalem and ransack certain parts of the temple. And so you actually see under Amaziah's reign, you actually see some not good things happening to him. Uh, he, a lot of that happens. He, he, begins to, he begins to grow and expand and he actually goes to Israel and he says to the king, like, I wanna fight you. And he says, listen, why don't you just be happy that you got Edom back? Because that was his victory. Why don't you just be glad about that and just go home? And he says, no. And his arrogance, his pride, his, I've got this army now, and I want to fight you. And he goes, okay. And here is this king who is good, but not as good as his father David. And God says, I'm going to let you get beaten. This is the part where I want to say, just when we think we know exactly what would happen, like Amaziah was better, he really was. Bible describes him as better and more noble and more faithful than the king of Israel. So if they're going to go to war, who's gonna win? The more faithful or the more faithless? Who's gonna win that fight? And the Bible, the answer is whoever God chooses at that moment. And God will use, here's a humbling thought, God will use um, the most surprising, some of the not very noble people to bring about judgment against arrogant people who may even be more righteous than others. That is a very strong biblical precedent, right? And how often have I seen in myself, in, in my community of faith, we're more righteous than them like, if God's going to start causing problems, listen, we're not the best, but he's going to get them first, right? The number of times people are wrong when they say that. The next king that comes along, King Uzziah. Right off to the side, I meant to put this in and I didn't. This, do you remember how many of you know this statement? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. Who is that? Who wrote that? Isaiah. Isaiah 6. Remember? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. And it is this particular king. So Isaiah is right on the beginning part of King Uzziah's, uh, the end of his life. And King Uzziah was an absolutely, he was a very righteous king, did a lot of very good things. He doesn't have a, a lot of bad things about him. He reigns, I believe, for 52 years, second longest king to reign, 52 years. The confusing part is the king that lasts the longest is King Manasseh. We'll talk about him next week. And he is the most wicked of them all. So just when I think I understand how this is going to work, King Uzziah, second longest, one of the greatest, the worst one, he has the longest one. How? Why? I, okay, the prerogative of God. But King Uzziah does do one thing. As he begins to grow in power and might, and the Bible describes just how much Uzziah begins to win against the Philistines, 
begins to expand his territory. And after he expands the territory, his um, father went up to the north and dared them, and it cost them. King Uzziah walks into the temple and goes, I want to offer something, and the priest kind of don't do it. He says, hey, I'm the, you don't understand who I am, I'm Uzziah. And then as he is speaking, leprosy breaks out on his forehead, and he's ushered away. He lives the rest of his life in exile. You do not just march in and do whatever you want on God. So God gives him a long reign, so here's this great king who kind of ends up leaving a rather broken, um, humbled king. God is not to be trifled with. Second to last one, King Jotham's reign. Jotham did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Not very much is mentioned about him. Like literally, it's like a paragraph. Jotham doesn't mention him much at all. I thought this was interesting though, and so I kind of have it listed underneath it. It says this, Jotham did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And then it says right after it, but the people of Judah did not. I just kind of had to sit and to reflect on some of that. Like, Sometimes we think, wow, if we just have the right person leading, right, then everything is going to get fixed, right? Like if we just have, um, you know, I'll I'll tell you a quick story because I don't think Andrea will find out. So her mother, my mother-in-law, sends my my youngest son, it was his birthday last weekend, and she sends him a birthday card, and I love her heart. I love my mother-in-law's heart. She sends him a birthday card, and it says, um, because since Max and my my younger two sons are the only ones born in the state, so they could be president. And my mother-in-law, who's just trying to write an encouraging word to my youngest son, she says, America needs a good Christian president, Max, so get prepared, or something like that, you know? And, uh, and I just, have, we, we, kind of, we were kind of chuckling about that. We thought it was really, really sweet. But as I've kind of been thinking about that later on, as much as I, I, do, I believe that, I was thinking more of the big picture, not necessarily Max being president. That might not be a good idea. But the more I began to think about just even that idea that if we just had a good Christian president, then what? And by the way, I'm still all for it. If I have to pick, I pick Christian over non-Christian 10 times out of 10. But I think sometimes we can be like deceived into believing that if we just, just tell me what you think, like what? Like then everything's gonna be right? Like there's, like it could never go, like you, I'm not gonna put my faith in even my own son who might be a great Christian president. No, that's not, we don't put our faith in this particular king in Jotham, even though he was a good king, because what? The people still did not follow the Lord, Okay? Good, good, healthy reminder that as much as we might want those things, our trust is not in male leadership. It's not in female leadership. It's not in human leadership. It is in the divine plan of God. Last king, King Ahaz. Um, thought, you know, I'd end on a negative note. King Ahaz, because the next king's awesome, by the way, King Hezekiah. But King Ahaz is a pretty messed up dude. And this is the first one where it's mentioned besides Solomon, okay, the very first king who in his nation is torn away from him. But notice that the increasing depravity, at times there'll be a good king, but the increasing depravity, Ahaz did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and then it says this, to the point that he sacrificed his children in the fire to the gods, and then it mentions the gods that he worshiped after. It's like, wow, I mean, that's pretty messed up. And, and again, it shows the degree to which idolatry, the degree to which this terrible way of living just leads people. 
And we're going to see a number of other kings in the future who are going to become more and more involved in this practice. A greater level of desperation, although I don't think it was Baal. Eh, it might have been Baal. I don't think it was Baal with Ahaz. It was a number of other different gods. And they're sacrificing their children to, to, uh, to him. And God's um, uh, frustration is gonna be more. Now here's the next thing that happens. He is attacked by Israel and the Syrians. So Judah down here, Israel here, Syrians here, Assyrians up there. And these two come down and they fight him. And King Ahaz, this evil king, when these two are about to attack, guess what he does? He doesn't call on the Lord. He calls on Tiglath-Pileser, a great Assyrian war king, warlord, okay? And he calls him and he says, everything I have is yours. Call me your son. Just come to my rescue. And tigath Pileser does come, and he helps him out, okay? Now, what's interesting is, is that when the king of Judah goes north to Damascus to meet with tigath Pileser and to give him all of his stuff, and by the way, there is an account of this encounter between Ahaz and tigath Pileser in tigath Pileser's Assyrian history. So for those of you that get kind of interested, is there any account of this anywhere else? Yeah, this encounter at Damascus is described right here. Now, to show you how brilliant Ahaz is, while he's at Damascus, looking at the Syrians who have now been, in essence, defeated by the Assyrians, right? He looks around at Damascus and he goes, wow, I love this idolatry. And he orders some people to come up and he goes, we need to do this back in Judah. And he, literally, before he gets back down to Damascus, they got a whole new system of idolatry set up. Isn't that brilliant? The degree to which a person can be deceived, and the Bible actually mocks him for A, trusting in tigleth Palaser instead of trusting in God. And then it really pokes fun at this. And he chose to worship the gods of the defeated Syrians instead of trusting in the Lord. So as we look through these kings of the south, you know, again, we're, we're not really looking just for moral stories, but we are looking for this constant theme of the faithfulness and, again, give me some room on this word, the predictability of God in which his prerogative still moves in times and in places and through different people that I am not the one who knows exactly how it happens. But we can go back and look at the things that God has promised from Deuteronomy 12 and from other places. We can go back and even begin to discern, is that person who's speaking to me, is he speaking truth from the scriptures? Is he warning me from the scriptures? I think it's good for us to wrestle with continually. Where do we look for? Where do we go when we begin to be nervous about protection and provision? Where do we go? And on the one hand, I can really see myself I'd love to tell you that as I look at these kings, I only line up with the good ones. But no, sometimes I, I get where some of these bad ones are coming from. And that, that kind of keeps me <laughs> humble, I guess. And I'm grateful that I have an opportunity, that we have an opportunity to learn from their mistakes. Okay, when we come back next week, we'll just have two more weeks left, by the way. And we're going to be looking at, I think, the next section, which is King Hezekiah and then on forward. Uh, let me pray. God, I thank you for our time and for uh, just the reminder. Um, it's, it's almost like I'm at some level um, benefiting from the failures and the mistakes of others. But maybe that's why you give us your word. You give us scripture to, to remind us of your sovereignty and your plan, your prerogative. 
um, that there would be a sense of humility as we think on and reflect that you really are in control of these things. And so God, I, um, I'm not standing here in judgment over any of these people, um, except for your grace. I just have no idea where I would be. Um, I pray that we would bring that sense of humility um, to uh, our lives, to our situation. Um, God, teach us, no matter what's happening around us, to trust you. And uh, God, I'm just grateful that as awesome as Deuteronomy 12 is, we have something so much greater in Jesus. And so I'm just grateful for the hope and the life that we have in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless, we'll see you Sunday.